this week on the Back Table Podcast. Honestly, Mark, I mean, we're doing these kinds of studies because this isn't cosmetic. There's been nothing new for lichen sclerosis in like 40 years since they realized that testosterone didn't work. And that's not, this is something that obviously it affects 3% of women, can lead to cancer, squamous cell cancer, and can lead to significant architectural damage to young women where lichen sclerosis can pre-pubertal and postmenopausal make really, really big changes. So, so if we have this information, that's important, right? And it'd be nice for insurance to cover that too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on Backtable.com. Welcome back to the Backtable OBGYN podcast. This is Mark Hoffman, and we have a very special guest today, uh, Dr. Sherelle Iglesia. Welcome, Dr. Iglesia. Thank you, Dr. Mark Hoffman. <laughs> Mark, please. And we were talking earlier and you had asked that I call you Shrell, so I appreciate that. Dr. Glessia or Shrell is a professor of OBGYN and urology at Georgetown University, the director of the section of female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. She's also the director of the National Center for Advanced Pelvic Surgery. And we are very excited to have you here to talk about cosmetic gynecology. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. So we always like to let our listeners know a little bit about our guests, not just their expertise, but also, you know, where you're from, how you got into the work you're doing, and more specifically, how you came to become an expert in cosmetic gynecology. Oh, okay. Well, let's see. I actually haven't gone very, gotten very far because I actually uh, was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland, <laughs> and I... Um, went to Hopkins for undergrad and then for med school, I, I was at the University of Maryland. And because my significant other was down in Florida, I ended up doing my OBGYN residency down in Florida. He was in anesthesia at USF and I ended up doing OBGYN at uh, University of Florida at Jacksonville. And our chairman, um, Robert Thompson, who's now deceased, was very active in both the American Urogyne Society and they introduced me to the site for gynecologic surgeons, so much so that I ended up doing a fellowship with the DeBrew Baker and Dee Fenner. And I think we both know Dee, so we shared Dee together since you were at Michigan. That's right. In Chicago. And then after that, I actually did a stint with the late Tom Benson in, close to you in Indiana on um kind of like a neurourology and the neurodiagnostic studies for pelvic floor disorders. So learned a lot about the neuroanatomy and how to do nerve conduction studies and EMG, EMGs for um, sexual dysfunction and incontinence and fecal incontinence urinary and whatnot. So that's kind of how I came to this. I mean, it's specifically to cosmetic gynecology. When I was um, on the Patient Education Board, as well as the chair of the Committee for Gynecologic Practice. Now, they're the committees that write those committee opinions and the technology assessments. I mean, this came across uh, the desk because there were a lot of advertisements for the term vaginal rejuvenation. And what, what year was that, if you're uh, roughly? Mid-2000s. Okay. Like, okay. I don't know, 2006 or so. And at the time, 
there was the opportunity to go out to Hollywood and do a weekend course. It was, I remember it was three days. It was $54,000 to learn about laser vaginal rejuvenation and designer laser vaginal plasties. And these were trademark terms. And I remember like inquiring about it. And I sent this to then my chair, because at this point, after graduating fellowship, I, I ended up here and started the division at MedStar Health and Georgetown University School of Medicine. I showed this to my chairman, who quickly said, are you crazy, Cheryl? <laughs> I'm not sending you to Hollywood to for $54,000 to learn this. Then you were, you were fully expecting him to say, oh, that sounds great. Let me, let me get out the checkbook. Well, I, you know, I said, listen... Dr. Mudovnik, we can, we'll get the return on this because look, you can charge these people. You can charge these people $12,000 for those little anterior posterior periods, which we're getting pretty much like 23 RVUs if you add the hysterectomy and the sling. And um, it's just cash basis. So like, I just do like five of these and I've made, made my money on this course. He's like, you're crazy. Anyway, I'm in academic medicine and I'm still curious. So I had to go and talk to people, including Eurogynes that had done this. And I remember talking to uh, John Miklos and, uh, you know, he was like, yeah, you got to go pay that. You got to pay to play <laughs> if you want that diode laser. But actually, the person who was very generous with his knowledge, and I have written some things with, published some articles, is Red Allensad. So I actually did end up going out to Long Beach and and seeing what Red was doing and learning about radio frequency and techniques and laser technologies and other energy-based technologies. And I just kind of followed it. But I have to say, joining the American Society of Laser Medicines and Surgery and hanging out with some of the cosmetic dermatologists really helped me understand the biophysics and then helped me get a better awareness of what was missing in terms of, you know, I don't want to poo-poo all of this. What kind of studies can we do for people who have serious issues, you know, like genital urinary syndrome of menopause and the very bad lichen sclerosis? And clearly, um, you know, being a fellowship trained and double board certified urogynecologist, you know, where does this fit in the armamentarium? cosmetic gynecology versus reconstructive pelvic surgery. And so I've given a lot of talks and I, in my mind, have kind of like what I, you can charge insurance for and what is maybe considered aesthetic. But it really wasn't until this past year uh, when I was asked, it was, it's probably been about two years, honestly, Mark, to be on a committee with the, I was a combo committee to develop a consensus document on what is Cosmetic Gynecology, which was just published. And so it was published jointly in the Blue Journal this year, Ayuga's Journal, the International Urogyne Journal, as well as the Gold Journal with the American Urogyne Society Journal, Urogynecology. It's been changed from FPMS to Urogynecology. And we basically did a consensus document on uh, cosmetic gynecology, gave the mini state-of-the-art lecture at the past Congress, which was in June in Austin on cosmetic terminology. 
for our listeners, can you give us a little brief summary of that? You know, because I think a lot of us mm -hmm. have heard the term yeah. cosmetic gynecology. And I asked you what year it was because I remember I was a resident from 2006 to 2010. And that's when... Designer, DLV. E! Entertainment Television had the plastic surgeons on and they had, you know, guys coming on talking about yeah. the G-Shot. Beverly Hills, 90210. Yeah, all yeah. of that. And it became... The O shot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it became part of the um, pop culture more so than anything I think that um, we'd ever seen before. It's And you know, we can talk a little bit about that in a bit too and how this has become more popular. But let's sort of maybe start from what the official... Yeah. Official definitions are, and then we kind of go back into the into the into the pop culture stuff. Yeah, and honestly, that term vaginal rejuvenation, laser designer laser vaginoplasties, that's not in these uh, official terms because that is a marketing term. And you and I also know that the FDA recently, like in, as of 2018, came down pretty hard on some companies who were marketing for specific indications ahead of really having any robust data. However. I want to be clear that the definition um, of cosmetic gynecology kind of has two, there's two different aspects of it. It's the elective intervention to alter the aesthetic appearance of the external genitalia or modify the genital organ, organs. And for elective functional procedures, in the absence of any pathology, I'm talking like you're not having incontinence, you're not having a episiotomy that didn't heal well, overt stage three prolapse. Anyway, it's elective with the goal of improving a person's quality of life. And that could be sexual function or whatnot. But it's a pretty broad definition that isn't specific to certain diagnosis. People have the option of not liking the way their eyelids look, their nose looks. And I think people have the option of not liking the way their labia minora look. I think that in general, OBGYNs um, look at the full spectrum of norm normality. And I think we may be less likely to do elective interventions than cosmetic surgeons, plastic surgeons who are trained, um, who don't really look at pathology. At the same time, they're not following women longitudinally like we do you know, cradle to grave, and know what happens over time as women age, after you have children, after menopause hits, and so on. So I think we, there's two different hats in terms of aesthetics, functionality, and then the whole reconstructive realm. In the, there's a flow chart in this document, which maybe we can add. Yeah, we, we can put it in the show notes for sure. That'll be great um, so that people can click on to it. But I do like this um, flow chart. And the first question is, is this, whatever procedure you're planning on doing, medically indicated or does it address a pathology? So if you have stress incontinence, that's not considered cosmetic surgery. And if you have overt cystocele, uterine prolapse, surgery for pelvic but that's not considered. Or if you have abnormal labia and it's getting in the way or discomfort with exercise. Which is a common one a lot of us hear. Yeah. You know, getting stuck in clothes and things like that, or even pain during intercourse or discomfort and things like that. That's right. 
and, and huge asymmetry, that's not necessarily considered cosmetic gynecology. If they answer no to that being medically indicated or addressing a pathology, the next question on this flow diagram is, is the intent to cause injury or psychological harm? And what we're getting at there, and I know the World Health Organization really comes out strongly on this, is the aspect of female genital mutilation or FGM for clitoridectomies, infibulations, you know, the kashiri cuts that are done in certain cultures. And again, that would not be considered cosmetic gynecology. Um, there are cultural mores and, and there are laws about doing some of these procedures in our own country, particularly for adolescents under the age of 18. And then if the answer to that in terms of causing psychological harm or causing injury is no, then the question is, is the patient making a well-informed autonomous decision in the absence of any external pressure or coercion? And I think this is where this has exploded because of what people are seeing, images that people are seeing on the internet, pornography. Because, and, and that's what we, that's what we talked about. Again, I had a, a member of my faculty, I was considering even giving a grand rounds on this just because it was something that I feel like prior to pornography becoming just ubiquitous on the internet, I mean, just so easily accessible before, you know, you probably had to go to some store on the other side of town. You had to physically go somewhere. Now, anybody with an internet connection can see things that you couldn't see without uh, someone either, you know, exposing you to it or, or, or having to go somewhere to get it. And in the past, when we thought of cosmetic surgery, it was things that were easy to see, noses or breast size and things like that. But now there was a whole new world of what was normal or what was considered attractive, where before the only external genitalia you might have seen was either your own or maybe a sibling or a parent who probably had pretty similar looking anatomy. Now we had exposure to endless amounts of anatomy in a way that didn't exist before. And so people started looking in the mirror and saying, well, maybe I look different. And this is something that, that, that was our theory. We actually, we did some very quick looks in Google searches. Yes. Because you can, you can go back and look at Google history searches and look back. And it was around the time of those shows, the number of searches went up exponentially. I mean, it became hugely popular to learn about that. I mean, it sounds really intriguing to say that who doesn't want to get their vagina rejuvenated? You have a Hollywood star who's ending a relationship. And then, so I went to get my, clean that all up and got my vagina rejuvenated. You know, let's just be real that, um, you know, women are all already, many people are very insecure when it comes down to um, sexual health. There's all the so much airbrushed stuff. And we see, we see people online, you know, a lot of these Instagram stars that are being caught, you know, manipulating their own photos. So not only are they professionally manicured in a certain way, they're even all digitally altering the after just to make it look right. So, right, we have a whole image issue in this country to address. I mean, let's not forget that with um, particularly the millennials, I mean, 83%, we did a paper on this, just survey, like literally on the street survey, 83% do some type of pubic hair grooming. It's a huge, you know, multi-million dollar industry uh, for laser hair removal. Anyway, once you remove all the hair, you, you do have a, a, a different view of what's down there. And there's a lot of pressure for these girls, like in the locker rooms, they're like, oh my God, even on, I remember seeing the Sex in the City show. 
Samantha telling, I forget which of the other women, like, I wouldn't be caught dead looking like that with, on, the, on the beach with, a, with, her ba- with her bathing suit on and some pubic hair showing. So there's a lot of shame. Let's just say when there's a lot of shaming going on and whether it be like on your sexual debut and you're like, that's not what, what is that? Oh my gosh. Then people feel really bad about themselves. So the bottom line is it should be autonomous. There shouldn't be any external pressure, like even societal social media pressure or coercion. And if that's the case and you, you know, everything's hunky dory, you've been educated, you've shown, been shown images of what is the range of normal. Then there's the aesthetic tier that if you want your labia menorah to be reduced and undergo a labiaplasty, then that's considered cosmetic. And then there's the functional tier. And that's like you want your vagina tightened surgically. Now that brings up this whole new concept of vaginal laxity. And me as a urogynecologist, I don't know where to draw the line because like, why um, do I want to subject someone to some $2,000 radio frequency procedure when I know how to treat you like with reconstructive surgery that has like ICD-9 or ICD-10 and CPT codes. <laughs> right. And I really appreciate how you've taken this topic where people are very passionate about it on both sides. Like, yeah, this is terrible. We should not be exposing these women to these procedures. You know, we just need to tell them normal is normal. And the other side is, hey, look, people are allowed to do what they want with their bodies. And we don't, you know, we people get nose jobs, people get breast implants, all these things. And so how is this different? And we should give people the choice. And what I so appreciate about what you've written and what you speak about and why I wanted you here is because you found that gray in the in-between where you can say, which is because life is gray. There's just no black and white, right? Oh, yeah. Where you can say, listen, this is here. This is what people are asking about. Let me become the expert. I'm someone who's worked really, really hard at becoming a surgeon and becoming good at it. So if they're going to have these procedures, let me talk to them. Let me make sure they're not being pushed into it. Like you said, that this is coming from the individual and that we feel like they're making a well-informed decision. Let me be the expert. So if they're going to get these things done, it's done in a, a way that is as safe as possible, that is as well-informed as possible, instead of just a lot of what we get in the ivory tower. And I'll say this is, you know, what I hear from people within my own department is like, if you talk about it, people are just like immediately passing judgment that you're just trying to either get rich or you're completely in line with, we should sculpt this perfect non-existent ideal. Yeah. As opposed to like just trusting people to decide what's best for themselves. And that's something maybe we could do a better job. And so I love that you've found this very patient-centered way of addressing this topic that we ought to be taking seriously because a lot of people want to know about it. And I think that the key question in, first of all, I mean, just some principles when you're operating on someone, never operate on a stranger. You need to know who you're operating on. The, the second thing is where they're coming from. The major thing that we have to ask is what are the patient's goals you know, what is it that you want to achieve? Well, I want to not make a lot of noises when I'm making love with my partner. I don't want to be wetting myself. And that's where having the skill set, educating yourself and sort of, you know, surrounding yourself with other people who are like looking at the technology, but then also studying it. I mean, I will disclose, I probably should have at the beginning of when I was describing where I'm from, (laughs) is that like currently I am the 49th president only the fifth women and the first Filipino-American president of the Society for Gynecologic Surgeons. And I should, I should have put that in your intro because it's one of, 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 of your many titles. That's an amazing one. Yeah, I'm excited about that. And I'll tell you why, because it relates to cosmetic gynecology. But the other thing is I actually 
have, I am currently a special government employee for the USFDA and I've served on five panels, including some of the, the stuff that is kind of controversial, like um, vaginal mesh, the morselator, the eShore, and some other things. And so I like to look at technology and, and I like to do the level one evidence. And I think that we need to do a better job in introducing new technologies. And I'll be giving this TED talk at the AGL on this, how to do that ideally. And usually you start with, you know, a small group to sort of like look at that technology, work on the kinks, figure out the iterations before things spread. And that's a little bit of what concern is that with cosmetic gynecology, some of that marketing got ahead uh, of the science. So like at the Society for Gynecology Surgeons right now, I know that they've got some trials uh, looking at laser um, and laser with or without steroids for uh, lichen sclerosis. I think there's a protocol right now on PRP um, and whether or not that works. So that that's the kind of stuff that we, which is platelet-rich plasma for sexual enhancements. You know, I, that's the kind of stuff that needs to be done. I know when I go to a lot of these cosmetic talks and they're like, patients don't really care. They just care about how it looks. At the same time, I get that because there's no objective criteria about that. But you can when it comes to functional. And the patients do need to know what we have because we have extremely good level one evidence for like incontinence and prolapse procedures. And that's, that's where it gets all muddied. And it's important to be able to ethically have that conversation and match the, what you can deliver uh, with those goals of the patient. No. And, and you brought up, you know, the, the FDA and your work there. And I got to work with ACOG's Committee on Health Economics and Coding uh, for a few years and chair that committee and learned a lot about how all this stuff comes through, but also, you know, the Morse later, and we talked a lot about that in my department and what we're going to do with that, but how these devices get put through the system, right? It's not And not, not just how they get value, but how the FDA, we talk about approval, but really it's not approval. It's if there's a predicate device that's similar enough, 510K process that just says it's close enough, we can let it through. So these devices can get through much more easily than a full FDA review and approval. And so the devices typically precede the research, you know, oftentimes come before the research. And so I think by being able to do what you're doing and taking these devices and looking at them, because the alternatives, they, they come out and no one looks at them. And then we found out after the fact, like some of the mesh things that, oh, we, we shouldn't have been doing that. And I think if that's one of the big challenges that I feel like with the ivory towers or the traditional academic sites to get these new devices reviewed, you almost have to prove that it works first, which is defeats the purpose. Because if we're trying as academicians and as, as researchers to study whether or something is safe or effective or beneficial, if I can't get it into my institution to look at, or I can't study it until it's been out there for a while, then what happens is that it's almost like the academic institutions are the, the last ones. They may do the RCTs once it's been out for a decade, but they're not the ones at the front of the line doing the work early on. So I applaud that very much. And I think I'm excited to hear you talk because that's something that I agree. It's, it's, it's something we're missing. Yes. And specific to cosmetic gynecology. So what the FDA back in 2018, and there were probably over like 40 different laser radiofrequency energy-based devices available in the United States. I mean, and they were, you know, people saying, you know, use this laser, it's going to fix your dry vagina. Use this, it's going to cure your stress, your incontinence. Use this one, it's going to make it tighter for you and for your partner. And they called this out, like even the term vaginal rejuvenation, because they didn't have the, the data. 
So like one of the most recent trials that just came out, and it was in October of 2021 on JAMA, was from Australia, a study that did look at a sham versus um, the Lee article versus uh, a CO2 laser for GSM. And, you know, it was at a year follow-up showed no difference. And so something pe- people can criticize that study, looking at the power of, and the settings of the lasers and the way that uh, some of these patients, 50% of them, I think, had um, breast cancer and that maybe these people need to be primed because these lasers focus with targeting the chroma for water in the tissue. And so particularly breast cancer patients on remote centers. But the bottom line is it's not good to have patients have an expectation that I'm going to spend $2,000 and I'm so afraid of estrogen because I have breast cancer when, you know, we have some evidence that some of the estrogens are safe um, with the formulations that are FDA approved in the doses that are recommended and in conjunction with speaking with the patient's um, oncologist. And so they, they go to these, these lasers because they see the marketing and that's where you can get some harm, you know, maybe not so much harm in terms of burns and stuff like that, but it's significant harm because that's a, that's a whole chunk of change out of one's pocket. And I, you know, I see it, you know, I had a urology, urologist that did laser and charged $2,000 to this woman who was a middle class, you know, she worked at a bank and had stage three prolapse. And there was just no way that that laser was ever going to help that prolapse. And that's sort of like not ethical. So we did her robotic copopexy and her sling. And then she sent her, her daughter. And then she sent all of her friends from the bank. And it was all covered by insurance. And so again, you know, it goes down to the goals. And I think that we do have to have real conversations. And I think a lot of doctors, particularly board certified, MIGs and OBGYN specialists and urogynecologists do do that very ethically. Sometimes I wonder what happens in some of these medical spas, though, where you have estheticians just kind of doing it and putting a wand in there or a, or a probe, not even doing a speculum exam to check for any type of pathology or wipe out the lubrication that's in there that's going to fog up the mirrors. So that laser is never going to do anything. So anyway, there's just just a bunch of stuff. And it's really refreshing when I see the multidisciplinary work that's being done at OGS, IUGA, and studies being done at SGS, and the collaboration with the ASLMS specialists who are kind of thought leaders and like people like McCree and Alexiades, um, who's a real guru on radiofrequency, dermatologist from Yale. It's nice to be able to have these conversations and then to put a pause on it for people who, if you're going to do it, let's like make sure we do the right thing and collaborate with the right people. And I think one of the challenges, and I agree with you, and I, cause because as someone who needs to know more, which why I was personally interested in having you on, I think a lot of us who are OBGYNs or GYN surgeons don't, don't know what's out there because it's like, well, it's, it's cosmetic. That's not what I do. Right. So I, I'm just, I'm not going to know about it, but the fact is our patients are looking for it. They're searching for it. They're looking online. And when what they find is a spa or, you know, someone who's not trained or doesn't know the data and the research, and then they come to see me and I go, you know, that's not really what I do. That's on me, right? I mean, that's not an excuse for me not to know. And so I need to be able to tell folks uh, what's available, what the options are. What the limited outcome data is. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Buyer beware. (laughs) 
Yeah. So, so what, what are, so we've talked a little bit about labioplasty and I think many of us are familiar with that. And Yes. And you can do a, a labia minoroplasty or, you know, you can do things to the labia majora with fat grafting and augmentation. I was reading about that, right? Like liposuction of the labia majora. Yes. Yes. So what, but what about, the, you mentioned lasers and RF ablation. What's being done? What's out there? What, what does the data show about there, about that, about those technologies and what should we, how should we be counseling our patients? Yeah. So for, for laser, uh, which are most of these are fractionated. I mean, we're all OBGYNs are really familiar with lasers. We use it for CO2, for HPV, and we use it for like, you know, zapping endometriosis intraperitoneally, which is kind of cool, particularly if you're near a vessel or um, the ureters. But these are fractionated uh, lasers. And so when you do that, the, um, the lasers are like um, divided into like sm much smaller laser beams with normal tissue between. And the temperatures, the power and fluency is a lot lower so that you're not burning tissue. You're supposedly stimulating the tissue growth factors and to make new collagen and new blood vessels. And that's how it works. And there's been a lot of histological studies that are published for the vagina and uh, for the vulva. Um, so lasers are uh, being used for like kind of like resurfacing. Um, it's known very well in, in Fraxel for the face that different kinds of lasers have different depths of penetration. Most of the ones that are used in cosmetic gynecology are in that far infrared spectrum with very low depth of penetration, not like the argon beam or Pico lasers, which go a lot deeper. Um, you know, argon beam we use for like cancers and around the liver and Pico is like used for like tattoo ink. But this stuff is sort of like doesn't even get down past the dermis to the lamina propria. Um, so it's very superficial. So the, the good news is the types of burns are pretty low. Uh, the bad news is, is that I think that, again, it needs that water. And so if, if it's super, super, super dry, particularly in people who are with aromatase inhibitors, just don't think we're going to have that tissue effect. And so, the, and, and what what tissue effect are you looking for? What's the what what are, what are, what are the indications for these procedures? What what are the outcomes we would? I mean, again, none of these have been cleared because the FDA has the five ten k process has only cleared it for like incision, ablation, coagulation of a tissue, including gynecological, you know, vulvar skin and vaginal skin. So it's not been cleared for indication. But what has been used for is GSM, genital urinary syndrome of menopause, and um, lichen sclerosis. So that's for um, the CO2 and the erbium lasers. Um, there's been a little bit on incontinence, a stress urinary incontinence, none of which has panned out. With the radiofrequency, so lasers light energy and radiofrequency is more current. For radiofrequency, that's been used more so with kind of like, I, I even liken it to like shrinky dink. So they use it on the outside to get rid of wrinkles and to let the labia kind of shrink down. So it's a more labor intensive, like you're there wanding for a much longer time. They used it at the introitus, at the level of the perineal body, to help with vaginal laxity. And so there, there's a couple of studies that are out there looking at level one evidence, sham um, versus active radiofrequency for that. It's also been used for stress incontinence, and, and there's even intraurethral but many of us know that there's other, there were some former products that were used using radiofrequency device that never really panned out in terms of that. But the bottom line is the data is low level evidence. We don't have 
big randomized trials. In fact, I think that's what the FDA is trying to get at. We need for GSM, vulvovaginal atrophy, dyspareunia. I think that's like one of the big ones. Um, You know, we need the level one evidence for looking at laser versus uh, sham. We did a small pilot study looking at laser. It's called the Velvet Trial with with us, Haven Clinic. There was like seven sites looking at laser versus estrogen for um, GSM and dyspareunia. And they were pretty much equivalent, but the study was very underpowered. That's a big deal, though. Yeah, it was equivalent. I mean, that's that's not nothing. It's not nothing. And um, we had um, vaginal maturation index, which was better with the estrogen, but pretty much all the other objective factors, vaginal health index and the female sexual function were pretty much equivalent. So we need larger trials. We need multi-site trials. I think the FDA probably wants to look at more of these like sham controlled studies, specifically before you start marketing or having women pay thousands of dollars because each of these treatments, you know, range from $500,000 a pop and you need like three or four of them to get, you know, the desired effect several weeks apart. So that's the biophysics of that. So that that literally is more on the energy-based side. So I guess um, laxity, GSM, like in sclerosis, stress incontinence. I think people are even looking at urgency incontinence, dyspareunia. Those are some of the major diagnoses that people are looking at. In terms of the other like anatomical aesthetic stuff, I mean, gives me pause a little bit because there's been a lot of cosmetic surgery that's based on what they're doing to the clitoris. Um, So there's the clitoral, you can get a a frenulum reduction called a frenulectomy. You can do surgery to affect the prepuce. Is is that with the intent of Increasing sexual arousal is that some people feel like there's like exposing the glands of, for an enhancement of sexual function, orgasmic dysfunction. But uh, there's a clitoral hood lift uh, with the prepuce. They call it a hoodectomy. Some people will resect that, like lichen sclerosis, if there's like adhesions around it. Any data on any of that? Rachel Rubin just recently did a little study on uh, clitoral atheolysis. So she's got some stuff out there, not a lot. And then there's a clitoral amplification with the platelet-rich, the PRP, platelet-rich factor, a plasma and the, the, you know, injections like the O-shot and stuff. And so again, not a lot. So a lot of this is proprietary. I'm just letting you know what's out there. Yeah. Well, no, because our patients are going to be yes. interested in it. They're going to be searching it. And we talked about the internet. They're going to find it. And the question is, that's right. if they come to us and we give them nothing, they're going to go somewhere else and find it. And so if we can all educate ourselves and... That's right. And I worry about the clitoris, right? Because particularly in a young woman, I mean, it's highly innervated. And so, you know... It's very concerning because you do damage and it and it's irreversible. I mean, that's extremely... Thousands of nerve endings, you know, and the clitoris itself with arousal can engorge 50 to 300%. So I kind of don't like to mess with it. And so anyway, that gives me pause a little bit, but obviously people are, are doing it. Right. So if they're, if they're doing it, we, we should know we should know about it a little more. We should know about it and buyer beware. Yeah, really. And particularly the young people. I think lichen sclerosis is a bit, a bit different. And then, you know, there are other options that in addition to the the tightening, which is more on the radio frequency energy based side, that's that whole vaginal rejuvenation. Is that is that just basically like in a sense heating up? And we talk about RF ablation in gynecology. We think more about you know endometrial ablation, but the shrinky dink effect, yeah. shrinky dink effect of the of the of the vagina, vaginoplasty, tightening. Yeah. Any data on that? No, there's not a lot. It's proprietary. 
which we can just do, I can do an anterior and posterior repair. But now, do is there a randomized trial? That would be very interesting to see. The question is, Mark, and this is where, this is where again, the gray goes. Again, remember the first question is, is this addressing a significant pathology? So what people who do this stuff as they're marketing, and again, it's very, very gray, they're going to be marketing for the not significant pathology, just a little bit of they call laxity. The, it just feels a little, they just want it to be a little bit tighter without having to have an incision and over what we do for like overt prolapse. So again, I think we just need some more data on it because it is a problem. I mean, the international, the, I mean, Continent Society or whatever, the IUGA does have a terminology called vaginal laxity. How do we define it? It's a sensation of looseness. <laughs> Right. That's hard. It's not something anyone can measure necessarily. At least they don't at the moment. And I think people can get it in their head that maybe one person told them that once and it's in their head forever that that's their problem. And, you know, I think it is the other big part of it too, right? Because people are very self-conscious and it's an area that people aren't as comfortable talking about, which is why, again, having a show like this, having you on to allow us to shine a light on it. So that you know what's going on on there. This is what's out there. If you're not on Instagram. But that's how people find stuff out. <laughs> or go listening to Goop. That's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we could do a whole other show on that. TikTok, a lot of the stuff on TikTok. But that, you know, the, the other thing that's out there on the vagina side is uh, vaginal augmentations with fillers, which is called as vaginal augmentation. And this is for sexual enhancement, the O-shot, the G-shot, the G-spot amplification, PRP injections, including hyaluronic acid injections into the anterovaginal wall behind whatever the G-spot is, what they feel like behind the, the clitoris along that anterovaginal wall. Again, you're paying hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for this, which is very limited evidence. And there are... And not risk-free. I mean, these are procedures. Yes. And, you know, I, you know... I, I, I've heard of cases where people are having a major reaction to that, to that hyaluronic acid. I understand that there are issues, I mean, that the people use a lot in the orthopedic literature. And, you know, that's why we have this trial going on with PRP for suction versus placebo, you know, but they use it in the knees. I mean, so there, you know, there might be something there, there, but let's, again, how we introduce these things, let's do it in a small, small group of well-trained surgeons and have very specific outcomes and outcomes that matter to the patient, whether it be like, this is going to help me with my orgasm. I'm having problems with, you know, an orgasmic dysfunction. It'd be nice to give them an actual answer. It really would be nice. So what of these, anything you've incorporated into your practice? I mean, you talked about, take, you know, you, you, you went out to California, you learned how to do some of these things. and Obviously, yeah. I mean, we, we are doing, uh, in, in addition to laser for GSM, I actually have done a lot. We, we published the CURLS trial in 2021, which was clobetazole versus steroid for, so clobetazole was a steroid versus fractionated CO2 for lichen sclerosis. That's the CURLS trial. The clobetazole was a steroid arm um, and it showed equivalence, which was a really good study, which is why now. I mean, that's huge. What period of time is that? Because when I, when I do that, it's, we're talking months, years. How long are we doing this? We presented six month follow-up um, and they got, three treatments and people were able to cross over. But what we followed it up and I, it hasn't been published yet, but we are presenting it at the meeting. Uh, and I think at a dermatology meeting, we recently did a study looking at the laser in people with lichen sclerosis and we did the histology. So there has, there was one study 
I think out of the Ukraine or Croatia or something, a Grink study, some maybe I think it was Bulgaria, honestly, but there wasn't a lot. And we were pleasantly surprised. We have a, a dermatopathologist that we worked with that actually showed not only the difference in the histology, but it correlated with the objective findings. And that kind of stuff, honestly, Mark, I mean, we're doing these kinds of studies because this isn't cosmetic. There's been nothing new for lichen sclerosis in like 40 years since they realized that testosterone didn't work. And that's not, this is something that obviously it affects 3% of women, can lead to cancer, squamous cell cancer, and can lead to significant architectural damage to young women where lichen sclerosis can pre-pubertal and postmenopausal make really, really big changes. So, so if we have this information and we can, that's important, right? And it'd be nice for insurance to cover that too. No, it's amazing. I mean, yeah, we, uh, we, we typically think of older patients with lichen sclerosis, but we, we also all have those younger women that are dealing with it. And it's extremely disruptive and that architectural change is irreversible most, right? We, we don't, and so, no, having a solution for that beyond just clobetazole and Good luck is, is it'd be nice to at least think of some other opportunities. So, so the whole purpose of this uh, cosmetic gynecology terminology was really to establish a framework so that people who are doing this and particularly investigators, we can have something so we can advance this and practice evidence-based medicine, improve safety. I mean, there's a whole thing on there about reporting complications. At the same time, it's not really wanting to just promote cosmetic oncology. We still, and it's our almost like moral obligation to emphasize that there are many anatomic variants of normal. And it's normal unless it's causing distress, discomfort, or bother. But you're doing the work of meeting patients where they are, though. I think when we say it doesn't matter what it looks like, it's all, it's all normal. If patients don't feel that way, we are, in a sense, passing judgment or we're telling them that their feelings about their bodies don't matter. And that's where the whole, you know, cosmetic side of surgery for the whole body is, you know, we, we, can, we can ignore it or we can understand that that's where the patients are. That's where their interests are. And so, you know, I think that's, again, filling that gray and being, you know, the president of SGS and having all the accolades you have and being, and being an expert in so many areas, but to be the one to also say, like, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to be the expert so we can teach others because our patients are going to find that either way. And so speaking of which, where do you see, and you've given a talk, I think what called the, the quest for the perfect vagina, right? <laughs> yeah, that was actually an editorial in the Green Journal. Right. It has followed me for like... <laughs> Whatever and I'll make sure this be, podcast they, is heard by as many people as possible. They, so they always bring, ask you about they it. Bring that that editorial back up. <laughs> right. No, and, and, and it was a great editorial. And I and I, I I loved it because it did just like what we're talking about today, which is talking about these things and putting it in a, the green journal, right? The journal we all sort of think of as, as uh, from all of our subspecialties in OBGYN, we all come back to that. So it could reach a wide audience to talk about this topic that all that all of us need to hear about. But since you are now, uh, we're, we're making you the expert on this uh, for, forever. Um, where, where is the quest for the perfect vagina going? Like what's on the horizon? What else are our patients reading about? What else is are the those that make the technologies and those that make the devices and the doctors who are trying to do this, where's it headed? What else are we going to see going forward? Well, I, I think what's, what's, what's we're hoping, and I think there are a lot of people down under, I think people in a lot of pediatric gynecologists in England, gynecologists in Australia, I think there's a better awareness that what's normal is not this narrow definition of the labia, like no camel toe, have to be kissy, kissy. I think that's coming out there. But 
you know, there is there are a lot of social media forces um, and pornographic images um, that we have to um, play into. I think there are, we're going to see some trials coming out that are the IND like trials. I specifically um, am interested in some of the trials coming out on breast cancer survivors in our own country because there's um, there's a couple on clinicaltrials.gov right now that are coming out, and I think that'll be really important. But we just we just we just have to keep spreading the word so that people feel very comfortable and promote body positive imaging. So that sexual health is health, and you know that's the only thing that we can do. Kind of understanding, you know, where is this coming from? I don't know. We could talk a lot more about shame. A lot of a lot of people, a lot of cultures in this. Well, a lot of this country is built on shame. I mean, the history of this country and a lot of the without getting political, there are a lot of people in this country who think talking about sex or talking about the sexual organs um, is a shameful enterprise. And I think that it's the kind of thing that you can pretend that these things don't exist, but they do. They're a huge part of most people's lives. And so, you know, I think that, like you said, making it something we can all talk about, making it something that we're more comfortable understanding what normal is. Because again, I know in, in the mid, mid 2000s, there wasn't any of our societies that were promoting on social media, what normal labia look like, right? It was pornography. It was e-entertainment television and those things. And so we may not be first, but if we're not, if we're not the voice, if we can't be a voice to compete with those other voices, with those other media, then that's where they're going to find out. That's where they're going to learn. And so, you know, I guess we're a little behind as always, right? (laughs) I think you need to have a show on, on uh, orgasm, Mark. (laughs) Are you going to come back and do it? Or? and masturbation. I mean, do you have, are, you, are you our expert for that too? You know, or do you have... No, I'm going to give you some names. Yes. No, no. <laughs> but I, I honestly feel like what's happening is, is that people are, they're, just, they're not educated and they're, they're, they're going to these other sources because they, they see that as a problem. So we, now you've got other things like the OSHAD and the, to help. But, you know, I think we need to talk about the clitoris, have something specific to the anatomy and the physiology and of the sexual response. So arousal. It, it's this big mystery, not because no one cares, but because not enough work has been done to study this stuff and understand it. Most of the most of the work was done, you know, it's been decades. And, you know, and yes, there's a huge need for it. And the expectations about arousal and orgasm and those things are don't follow the science. So, yes. So see how there's so much of this, this functional aspects that we need to do, but that's where a lot of these marketing things have come across because of the dearth of um, information that's like solid. Somebody will fill the void. Somebody will answer that question. But do you want it to be the person who's, you know, who's the most educated in, in, in those areas, who's done the most work, or do you want it to be the person who can potentially profit off it? And I think that we have, so kudos to you. Thank you for coming on the show. I know you're a very busy person and we know that you made extra efforts to be here today. And so we're very grateful for that. But this is, I mean, this, this, this has just opened up a whole bunch of new stuff for us. And so keep the conversation going. Yes, that's what this is. <laughs> this, this is a is... fantastic podcast. I've listened to, you have a great voice. I think the ideas oh, well, thank are great. You so much. So I wish you the best and have a happy Thanksgiving, too. Hey, you as well. And thank you again. I'm grateful to be here. Yeah. And uh, we'll we'll follow up soon all, all, a lot of the with the articles and stuff to put those in the show notes. If there's anything else you want to make sure we include in the show notes for our listeners so they can listen to the show and then find more resources to learn more about this. Like, where can we send our listeners to find stuff, right? That's not just for our patients, but for our providers. So we can go, we can read, we can become more educated to provide our patients with the information that they deserve. So uh, we will do that. Fantastic. 
It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. Have a great holiday. And uh, and we appreciate you coming on Backtable OBGYN. Namaste. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>